You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, The Running Public. You must be a pro because your sound is incredible. You yeah, sound you better than headset. Just... <laughs> yeah. Uh, the place I was yesterday wasn't that great, but this is much better. Um, but this is what I use for work, so this is what I normally use. What do you do on a daily basis for work that requires a professional headset? <laughs> um, right now I work with mergers and acquisitions. So from like post-close, I work with the teams that well, or the companies that we acquire to involve them from like a technical standpoint, like data security, infrastructure, et cetera. So you have a job job. It's not just I work part-time at a shoe store or... Yeah, I have a job job, I guess. <laughs> Those are jobs too. Mine's just a lot Your of hours jobs, and different. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Corporate's a little different though. Must be a flexible job, job. It is. Yeah, it, they let us uh, work remote. So it's actually 1030 here, but I just got off an, a meeting because I'm still working hours there. Um, so whenever I travel to Europe, it's really fun, but it's also very exhausting. I get tired really quick because I'm still working uh, those hours. Where is here? Uh, France, Chamonix. Chamonix. It's not like yeah. she has anything going on this weekend or anything. I can't imagine. Yeah. <laughs> what? Yeah. Do you typically arrive this early for a big race? Uh, I learned this last year, but I do incredibly more better if I see the entire course. Uh, oh. I made some mistakes last year because I I would check just like the start and the finish. And years past, like in international races, um, I feel like the U.S., for whatever reason, I could get away with not seeing an entire course. But in Europe, it's just so specific, like where those kind of like thousand per mile parts are. Um, You know, I'm talking about like the up and the downs because you can have like a very runnable thousand descent and then you could have a very technical thousand descent. One could be six minutes and another could be 20. Um, So just learning where those chunks are has helped me tremendously towards the end of last year. So now I'm committed to it since I know what works for me. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm shocked that you took this interview, Danny, knowing the time difference. Um, Oh, I assume you're adjusting. (laughs) Because yeah. if I had a if I had a big race like this is probably the big was well, the biggest race of the year so far I would assume coming up. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's and, next weekend though, so I'm pretty good. Oh, it's next weekend. How come I thought mm-hmm. it was this weekend? Silly me. Uh, probably because I'm here so early. <laughs> Maybe that's it. Yeah. So, what is the total kilometer distance for this race? This one is supposed to be 42k, um, but that's why I'm also checking the course because you know mm-hmm. trail running notoriously can be 38k or 45k um and yes. these races 30 minutes can make a huge difference uh so yeah today i checked the biggest climb and descent which was extremely helpful that is i knew it was going to be an important part of the course but even now in my head it's like the it, like the part um and then tomorrow i'll check the beginning and then the day after i'll check the end well i like this approach because 42k marathon distance to a typical high-level marathoner, you just get in and they drive you around the course the day before. Yeah. <laughs> and maybe you do it two days in a row if you really want to learn it, but you can't really do that yeah. in trails, let alone mountains. So you will get out and you will see every inch of this 42K course over the course of, what, 10 days? Yes. This one will be like three to four. And then whatever parts I feel like I need to see again, then I will do. Mm-hmm. Um 
But again, this is more recently learned. Like this was last year. Uh, I feel like I'm learning something each year, but I feel like for myself and knowing my strengths, knowing where certain parts are really helped me at the end of, I did the golden trail series last year Mm -hmm. and those last two races, um, I, I just saw immediately how it helped me. Yeah. We're kind of diving right into the, the juicy yeah. stuff right away <laughs> rather than easing in. But this kind of highlights something that is talked about a lot in our running circles is why do the stud Americans not translate always to European mountain courses? And I, I think part of it is this, is most people don't get your wreck of the course. They don't get out there and see everything because like, uh, for example, um, let's say Hard Rock 100 or or Western States. Like it, you know, one step of the course is the whole course. Like this is a speed goat course, or this is, you know, you can get away with carbon fiber trail shoes on this course, or this, you just know it. One thing is the whole thing. Yeah. And that, I feel like a lot of our Americans get done with a race and say, ah, I just didn't understand how the back half was going to change. And I would have used different gear. Or I would have set up my water different, or I didn't understand you could have people handing you water this year or whatever it was going to be. So I like that you're taking this seriously. Yeah, thanks. I think it's, yeah, I think it definitely helps. There's a lot of people that don't check the course. I have some other theories, too, as to why maybe Americans haven't shined in the way that I know we could in Europe. Um, But, yeah, I could see this definitely helping a lot of people. And what are they? Uh, (laughs) I figured. Unless these are secrets that you are going to keep because you're going to not follow them (laughs) and other people will. (laughs) No, sharing is caring, right? Uh, The better everyone else gets, the better I get. Um, So one of the main things is, like, here in Europe, you're either going straight up or straight down. And you're doing that repetitively. And I don't think enough people, at least in my circle of runners, are willing to eliminate the adventure all the time. Like, people want to chase a peak or they want to do a point-to-point, something that's also fun. Uh, But maybe this is just because I'm extra competitive. But you have to, like, uh, manipulate your training to, to, like, really mimic these courses over here. And so I find myself doing a lot of mundane things that aren't fun to a lot of people that I know. Uh, so whether it's doing the same hill up and down or doing the exact course, like two up, one down, two up, two down, etc., cetera, um, it doesn't look that fun, but then it helps a lot of the races. Do you find yeah. that um, it's easy to find the technicality where you live that's comparable in some regard, or is there another level? I've never been uh, to that region in the mountains, or is there still like another level that's hard to find in your current training grounds? Um. It's a lot better now because I moved to Mammoth Lakes in 2020 uh, when I was in Santa Barbara, definitely. Uh, Santa Barbara is technical, but it's like sandstone, very manicured technical. Um, But in Mammoth Lakes, you can get off trail in some parts to where it's not impeding, you know, on nature and stuff like that. Because in Europe, you basically go straight up, straight down. And Mm -hmm. that's been... I'm sure a lot of people maybe or maybe not know that, but a lot of times when I'm checking courses, like what is the most intuitive path is never the right path. (laughs) It's always the one that's like meandering down the hill in a way that doesn't make sense to my American mind. Um, So learning those and then now that I've seen more courses, I'm able to choose places in Mammoth that kind of replicate that. Will they ever do it perfectly? Probably not. Um, Even here in Chamonix, there was like, a trail that I did today that was 
like straight down, but also covered in like pine needles. So you can really see where the rocks were. Uh, <laughs> I don't have anything like that in Mammoth. Maybe, maybe in like the Midwest somewhere, Wisconsin, I could get something closer. <laughs> if you like 200 foot hills, then sure. You can, have yeah, yeah. Of them. <laughs> that's not going to cut it. Did you pick Wisconsin or randomly? Yeah, was no, I've Dave? been to Wisconsin. <laughs> I knew one of you guys was in the mid. Aren't you both kind of in the Midwest? Where are you, Kirk? I'm just like 45 minutes over the border. I'm in Minneapolis. Minneapolis. Oh, okay. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> I have a quick, quick question. Then you said that you had an idea, maybe why the Americans haven't uh, shined as much uh, in Europe. Um, but if you dive a little bit more into like how the Americans have done, I would say historically the women have performed better than the men. And I believe you took a top five out out there, didn't you? Last year, the year before. So like you've had success. So you have a theory on why the men can't hang over there as well as the, the women from the States? What's your theory there? We've had a few winners, right, of big races over there. What's the theory yeah. there? Anything? I I honestly am not sure yet. I will say the Europeans race completely different than the Americans. They um, It definitely took me a couple of years to really let this sink in, but I would look at my data and like 60% of the later part of the race in a few in a few of my better European races before the last couple of years, like my times would be very similar to the top 10, but I would just start so far behind because in America, I would be able to get away with that kind of like a slow build into the race. And last year, I really learned how to get out. And if you can survive that initial get out, especially if there's single track or like technical areas, and then replicate those same splits then you find yourself competing with those people for whatever reason like they just get out hard here like sometimes even faster than i would think would be the equivalent to like a road marathon uh which i find really interesting um so yeah i've learned to get out which his yeah that that along with checking out the course has helped me tremendously but yeah the top five was at the golden trail world series or i got a couple and then i ended at top five yeah Decent. And that golden trail and all those, they keep us company on our treadmill sessions, which Kirk and I have to do oh, a yeah. lot of because we don't have mountains, obviously, in the Midwest. So we're always grinding uphill on ours. But watching those, I feel like speed rarely translates to, to film. It just never looks as impressive. But their starts to those races looks fast. And you know if it looks fast in a distance race, it's actually really, really fast. And to see some of these guys and girls out there... They're getting out so obnoxiously fast. I always think it's like the one thing I wouldn't want to do with second half climbs looming. Yeah. So did you have to just start doing workouts like that or was it just overall raising your capacity so you could handle it? Uh, I would say both. Um, It was. You do fast start workouts? Yeah. Or I just like make a mental note to start the workout hard. Whereas before I would say I would always warm up into it. And so. Mm -hmm. I would say in the last couple of years, I take my warm-ups a lot more seriously now, too. I feel like maybe in the trail world, it's a little, um, I don't know, not as, it's just very relaxed. It's like, oh, we're going to yeah. run a mountain marathon. We're just going to warm up a mile, get on the start line. Um, but like even, I did a race this last week in Vail, Colorado with the GoPro games. Mm-hmm. That warm-up was like a very full warm-up. I did like 30-second pickups to really get my legs going, and I would have i never did that you know like years ago um and maybe it's the 10k right the 10k yeah yeah congrats by the way oh thank you (laughs) yeah it was a good one um but yeah in college you know you do like your stretches with your team and strides and stuff like that um Mm -hmm. so now 
And then I felt like I went through a rebellious period, like many trail runners kind of feel. We feel rebellious. <laughs> so it's like, I don't need a warm-up. Uh, but I now, stretched yeah. in a year, that sort of yeah, thing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's tough because even a road marathon, you don't do a crazy amount of intensity prior. Like road, ultra, it's, it kind of feels like that you get your hips moving, you get your ankles moving, you make sure range of motions there. And then I'm just going to aerobically ease into this race, but they don't allow that to happen overseas. Yep. Nope. You just get out. And a lot of it too is like, there's a lot of single track, um, mm. at least in the races that I've done. So you have to get to the single track, especially if you're a woman, cause you're not only racing the woman, you're racing the men and you're racing that like just behind the top guys, like those kind of sub elite paces. Mm -hmm. And that's a big group of guys. It is, you know, um, you know, you got like your top 10% and you got like 20, maybe 15, 20% when you're here in Europe of guys who are very, very good. Uh, so you have to like meander and work your way through them if you get stuck, which can be really annoying at times. Mm. How is the yeah. trail etiquette? I assume pretty good. Is there any issues yeah. there usually? Uh, downhills are always tough because uh, in Europe, sometimes it's not like... It's kind of like an unspoken rule that you may or may not be able to uh, cut the switchbacks. Um, and I ne am never in the know of what the actual rules are with that. Uh, so I try to stay to the marked trail with like the markers as much as possible. But I'll get, you know, usually guys, sorry, <laughs> like cutting the switchbacks and bombing that. But then I'll just catch them again on the uphill. But if there's like any lack of etiquette, maybe it's that part. That's like the only part. Hmm. Yeah, but everyone's pretty... I've had so many guys like cheer me on and like help me move up through a race before. It looks like the guys over there will latch on and race the girls. Is that true? Does it appear that way? Or oh, totally. on film, it, on, it always looks like some guy gets caught and he resurges yep. rather than steps aside. Yep. hundred percent. Do you sure. prefer that? I do. Yeah. Because like I said, the women can sometimes get spread out because of those guys in between. And mm -hmm. so I think it helps re-engage my mind that I'm racing the women, but I'm kind of racing everyone, uh, or I need to be racing everyone if I want to be moving up the field. So I like that, those constant re-engagements. Yeah. I suppose that links, like if there's a two minute gap, six guys in between is yeah people to pick up and exactly. keep you engaged to some, to some percent there. We uh we could continue questioning you about this for two hours if we had to. So what I I'm gonna slow us down if I can, and then we we'll yeah. get to the details, um maybe later because I have a fascination with what you know the European racing and the and the big trail races out there, and and I, we could make it just about that. But we we need to get to know you first. I think that's yeah. important. And I and I was re I was going uh through your website, which you have a very nice website by the way. I don't know if Bracken you got a chance to look. Oh yeah. Um, Danny Dash Moreno dot com. Yeah. That's right. Shout out. <laughs> Uh, although I did, I did click on your uh, the pot, my favorite podcast link, and I didn't see the running public on there. And I know it's hurt. like most <laughs> women ones, huh? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I'm giving you a hard time. But so I kind of read your your story, and I knew a little bit of it. And you often hear like you know you have a, a accomplished uh, road or track athlete eventually find the trails and make the switch, and you did that. I would say maybe a little non traditional, but I would say because you took a breather there for a while. Um, but uh, I would say that you probably already done far beyond what maybe you would have done if you stuck to the track. I'm assuming I don't know your details on the track, but I th kind of want to like outline that story um, and how you got to like this. I don't know. 
your persona on social media, like you're like the happy runner. You're the appreciative runner. You have good reflection on the process and everything. And I don't know. I find that's rare to find tolerable humans on the internet these days <laughs> who represent what we are doing in a good way. And you do it very well and it feels genuine. So I want to like understand how we got to today. Right. So, um, you know, I think you've listened to the podcast. You kind of know how we do this a little bit, but uh, I don't know much about you and your background. And we'll ask lots of questions about today later. Don't worry. But like, where did this all start for you? Yeah. And um, thanks for those comments. I really appreciate that. Um, yeah. Those are standard. He has a placard that's just right on the <laughs> screen. I wouldn't. It's strolling words. Yeah. It's not true. <laughs> um, yeah. So I played soccer. That was kind of my background growing up. and um, But in an odd way, I always loved running. Like, that was my favorite part of soccer. And my parents kind of recognized that from a young age. I was pretty shy. Um, and then running was kind of helping me gain confidence and find my voice, etc. Um, but it really was like my mom and dad and then also my uncle taking me out for runs. And my uncle had run in college and... Uh, he like did he was a police officer and he did this like police games and uh he said that he got second he told me sorry i don't remember this and i was like oh why didn't you win and my parents were like whoa where's this coming from because <laughs> i was so hot yeah <laughs> he's like well second place is actually really good um so they started to see this competitiveness come out of me. And Does he, he still rib you when you, you only take fifth in the gold? Yeah, yeah, is exactly. Like, What's wrong with you? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I wish he did. That'd be awesome. Um, but anyways, uh, was running, did soccer, and then coming out of high school, got recruited for running and a couple of notes for soccer too, but my heart was in running. Uh, so I chose that letters um and then chose uc santa barbara and thought that was going to like put me on this whole new stage um unfortunately that just i didn't have the best relationship with that coach there and just it you know the all too common story my career was kind of all over the place um at one point i was running like 100 mile weeks because i was told that that was the way to get faster burned out really quick in the last two years were just me being injured as soon as I was healthy I'd get I'd race injured race etc um and yeah it kind of I felt really burned honestly from the fact that I felt like I had put so much time into this sport and when I came out of college um you know I didn't have like really cool internships on my resume uh, I thought maybe I could run after school etc um and now looking back I probably could have with my times for the time that it was but I had no perception of how teams worked, etc. I also had like no guidance in that world. Um, and yeah, so I started outdoor guiding and stopped running completely, uh, started spearfishing, started skydiving, started climbing, started riding my motorcycle everywhere. Um, how'd you just, get into guiding? Um, I Were you already big into the outdoors. I was, and I would say my fifth year of college as I was already starting to like disengage from running um, I started to really like camping uh, whenever I could and, you know, uh, in kind of spite of my coach was running not what he was telling me to do and I was wanting to do these other things instead, riding my bike, my bicycle at times around town, going down to the beach and stuff like that, um, which was kind of interesting for me because I was always a rule follower and 
it was just a very rebellious, I guess, time in my life that last year, but I needed that. Um, but yeah, so I found guiding. I used to be a camp counselor too, all throughout college. Um, so I was wanna, doing like, sorry to interrupt. You want to know how she got into guiding. I want to know how you got into spearfishing. That's a, that's much less <laughs> common than guiding. Itself. Yeah. Like that's a hobby. That was a hobby or is a hobby of yours? Yeah. Spearfishing spear and lobster diving. I was yeah, really huh? getting okay. into that. Um, how does somebody take the first step into, into that? I'm a big fan of a, a, a I guess a company or a podcast called the Mediator Podcast, and they recently had um, had a woman from Hawaii who is a basically she spearfishes all the time. I didn't know it was like really a thing, and they made it seem like such a big deal that she was this woman spearfisher. So it's built up in my mind that like the spearfishing thing is pretty rad. So I'm just curious to hear more. Yeah, it's amazing. Basically, I was living in Santa Barbara at the time. And I just saw people walking down the beach uh, who had come out from diving. It's it's not super common there, but it's like it's not. But it's also not uncommon if you're in the outdoor kind of space to have a friend who spearfishes. And so, um, yeah, just decided it looked cool, and I wasn't running. And the idea of like holding my breath underwater was interesting to me because I also. Um, actually was kind of like scared of being underwater, which made me feel even more interested in it to kind of like overcome that fear. Um, yeah. Interesting. So I, um, this whole holding your breath thing. So I had a stress fracture my senior year of high school. I had many stress fractures in my past and I stumbled upon this sport called underwater hockey. I don't know if Mm -hmm. you're familiar with it. No, but I know underwater torpedo league. Well, maybe it's similar, but it's a true hockey puck and you have this little wood handle and you have to score on the shallow end, but it requires you diving to the bottom on the deep end. Yeah, it doesn't matter. But I was injured for about two months and I played underwater hockey with the old guys because that was an old guy sport. And I wore my normal swim shorts and they called it like swimming with a parachute and I could never keep up. But point being is I had to hold my breath and the aerobic development that gave me when I had come back to running, I picked up right where I had left off. I was only like an 800 meter and 1600 meter runner. And I credited it all to underwater hockey, holding my breath and developing some aerobic system in a way that I didn't know was possible. Do you see any like correlation there? I wish I did. I think I, I convinced myself that if I ever did want to do like an endurance sport again, that I would get that benefit. Um, but... Yeah, I'm not surprised though, because you know that's how like Laird Hamilton's mo is like doing high intensity stuff underwater to improve his aerobic base for you know big wave surfing and stuff like that. Hmm. Well, I was just curious because uh, I I still believe it's what saved my senior year. So I believe not, it too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but anyways, continue. Sorry, I got stuck on the spearfishing. No, thing. you're good. Uh, yeah, not a lot of women do it. I would get a lot of like, oh, it's a girl, not a guy, because you're like all decked out. And then I would like pull off the hood and they're like, oh, it's a girl. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, so then what did I do after that? Oh, okay. So I was outdoor guiding and I was working with kids and adults. And then eventually just got to a point where there's kind of this lifestyle that comes with outdoor guiding where, you know, you guide all day, you drink all night, stay up super late. And I was enjoying that for a short amount of time of the guiding. And then I found myself wanting to have a kind of routine again. So I started to wake up and like go on hikes. Um, And then I was out doing like sea cave kayaking at the the Channel Islands. I don't know if you guys know those off the coast of California. Mm -hmm. It's like a national park. So I'd go out there and like live for like five to seven days and kayak all day. Um, 
So yeah, I just found myself wanting to get further and further across the island. And so I just started jogging and then jogging some more and then jogging even further. And then I heard of a thing called trail running and started going to the running store because I had like this really cool map of a local race called Nine Trails, which is in Santa Barbara. And uh, yeah, I just started to find myself more and more interested in it. And um, I didn't like have a watch. I would just like kind of like guess how far I was going based on the sun. And I just found myself like starting to fall in love with the movement again. Um, So yeah, it was like a definitely a very important hiatus for me to get away from running. And then uh, I started like jumping into races and stuff. And they were pretty small, but I was winning them. And I think a lot of that was actually like carryover from college in a weird way. Um, Even though I had taken at that point, like a little over a year off. Um, And then I pretty much, so I ran two trail races and on the third one, Hoka approached me with a sponsorship, which was crazy to me. I had like beaten the US champ at the time. No idea. I was basically like running for the money because you don't make shit as a (laughs) guide. Um, And there was a big paycheck. So I did that. And then somehow they got my information and like the marketing manager hit me up or the team manager. And yeah, then I signed with them having no idea what that even meant to have a sponsor. So I admittedly probably wasn't a smart immature at the time to accept that. And I think if uh, I had done what I was doing then, I probably would not be sponsored. Um, But luckily, right place, right time. And uh, yeah, I've been sponsored ever since. Up until this point, what did training look like? Or was it still like sundial running (laughs) to get to my hike? Yeah, it was that. And then I started um, because guiding is very tiring because I'd be out in the sun all day kayaking, surfing, climbing, whatever it was that was my job for that day. Um, so it was a lot of that Mm -hmm. stuff. I got really strong. Like I could just whip a kayak on top of the top of a minivan. That was pretty cool. Um, but I just started doing stadiums cause in my head I was like, I don't want to run for distance. I'll just like go up and down this thing for like 20, 30 minutes. And so with the trail races, the first couple, I was very surprised with how it was going. And I think doing all these kind of, they're all adrenaline activities when it comes down to it. Uh, we're filling that void that I think running kind of did for me where it was like pushing my body and mind to its limit just in a slightly different way. So I found myself immediately Mm -hmm. really loving downhills. And so I think that just helped me a lot. I just had like no fear at all, uh, compared to a lot of the women I was racing. So if I can just like manage to kind of be close to them on the ups, then I would just like thrash myself on the downhills. Um, and then that's interesting because isn't that the biggest disconnect between college runners heading to the trails is the downhill yeah and that was i would say that was my strength so why you why why were you good um i think because i just didn't care (laughs) like i i guess it was again like going back to that rebelliousness at least when i first started trail running that like i didn't want to coach i didn't want like practice i didn't want to be told what miles and how fast to go but running downhill mm-hmm. is kind of like a, a f- way of expression, I think, that it's like, you can't tell me what to do. I'm just going to throw myself on this downhill. Who cares if I get injured? Like, whatever. Um, so, yeah. And it worked out well for me for, I would say, a couple of years. And then I realized you also have to be good at uphill. 
It's true. What did you start in footwear-wise? Because going to Hoka after college track is like a... Maybe it's part of your rebelliousness that let you do it, but I... When I started trail running, I scoffed at Hoka. And now yeah. Kirk and I are both, you know, we love Speed Goats. We love the Jaws. We love the Evo XC. Like, we're Hoka guys. My Tecton X's came in an hour Tecton ago. Tecton X, we're testing out the right Tecton, now. Yeah. And, but initially, I lumped Hoka's in with triathletes and and five-finger shoes. You know, it just it wasn't what I cared about at the time. So... What were you in prior, and why did you even consider running in these cloud marshmallow things? Yeah, they, they've they come a long way, I will say that. Um, I actually mm-hmm. was running in ultras, just because they were the cheapest shoe at Okay, the, so that's the even store. a bigger jump from yeah. college. <laughs> I just, I didn't know Hoka, and to me at that time, uh, you know, that initial contract, I could probably share this, but they were like, we'll help you with travel. And to me at that time, I just wasn't making a lot of money. I was like, oh, shit, you're going to pay for me to fly places to race? That is so cool. And I had only talked Mm -hmm. to two other companies. And the Hoka contract, I talked to Ultra and I talked to La Sportiva, who all hit me up after the same race. Mm -hmm. It was just I did not know how important this race was at the time. Um, And, yeah, I just chose Hoka. it? It was used to be part of the series called the... Montreal Mountain Cup, and then it was the La Sportiva Mountain Cup. This was like five years ago. Mm-hmm. It was probably the last one. So they had like multiple, like five or six cross country, and then you all qualify for a final in Salt Lake. Um, but for what the happened time, happened to Montreal? I have no idea. They had a racing <laughs> shoe I liked for a while, and now they're just gone. Yeah, I, yeah, I don't think they have a team. Actually, I'm thinking of Merrill. So what was it about Hoka that, uh, yeah, yeah, they butter, like, what was it about Hoka that, that you chose them over the others? Cause they were, those are good brands at, at the time, very pronounced brands. Yeah. And still are. Um, so I sat down with the, who is now the global head of marketing. So he's like my team manager's boss, but at the time he would have been like my team manager. So I sat down with him and his coordinator, um, and essentially told them I was going on a three week a motorcycle trip to Thailand and wasn't planning to run and if they were cool with that um, and he said yes that's awesome we love that you're such an individual and uh, I think the funniest part of that conversation I find it hilarious maybe they don't is at the time I told them yeah I really want to do 100 mile races I want to do Nolan's 14ers I want to do all these long races and to this day I've only ran 150k um so, yeah, I think they they saw me as an investment for the future, and I have yet to, to hit that. Um, but they've never brought it up again that I was saying all that stuff. But, yeah, I think at the time it was just important to me to still be able to do a lot of other stuff, and they seemed to support that. Like, they thought that was awesome that I was doing these other things. Excellent. Okay. That makes sense. I, I, I don't, like... <laughs> You always wonder how people get their break. Obviously, you have to perform well, which you clearly did. You didn't even know how well you performed, obviously, at the time. But three races, Danny? Your three trail races was your third trail race, you said? Something like yeah. that? Yeah. I can double check yeah. on all is that a dream? Is that a fool's dream? I mean, like, okay, if, even if it's 10 races, like, something like that is, is that possible in today's age if there is a phenom out there and they hop into an important race? Or does it now take proving yourself multiple races before anybody comes sliding into your DMs? What do you think? 
I think it 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 can still happen. It depends on the race. Um, I don't know. Like if you go out and win Western Who just States, wins Ninke. So Ninke, uh, Ninke. Yeah. didn't that just happen with her? Didn't yeah. Mikey just snap her up? So yeah, she had like a. She's kind of like Solomon last year, and then going into this year, she was Nike. Um, but yeah, mm-hmm. she ran. Yeah, she ran road marathon, some trail races last year, and she got snatched up. Um, but like, I don't know if you remember this, Cat Berard. She ran Western States. She was kind of a nobody. She's gonna get ton. She like you know now has been sponsored since then. So I think it depends on the race. Um, but you need mm-hmm. to know which races to pick in order to do that. That makes sense. Can you imagine three trail races in Ultra, Hoka, and La Sportiva message you and say, <laughs> you're, you're important, let's let's talk. Yeah. Because most people are constantly hitting up brands like, hey, you should check out my most recent event. Yeah. And you were like, I don't have a watch. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I still to this day don't have data from that race because I wasn't wearing a watch. And I'm very curious to see how fast I was running. I have no idea how fast I was running at certain points. Um <laughs> I do think it's significantly harder to do that in sub ultra though. Like if you win a big sub ultra race versus someone winning winning something like Western States, Hard Rock, maybe even Speed Goat 50k, maybe that's even kind of going to that kind of sub ultra round. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's it is harder to get sponsored with sub ultras. Just knowing my friends and people that I've talked to who have reached out to me about that. Let's talk about um, leaving the track and the roads behind for a second. Um, it took me until I was 30, 39 now. It took me until I was 33 to do that, um, mostly because I realized I was getting outrun more than anything on the roads, and I found the trails and realized, one, I could stay injury-free much better, and two, it was an adventure instead of like a, a just a metric that meant nothing. Um, so you never went back and you never had any thoughts of going back. And it was very concrete in your mind that like, I'm going to leave the track and the roads. Like, what was it about it that is unappealing to you now or through that process? Um, I would actually say it's more appealing to me now than it ever has been. Mm. Uh, I actually have never ran a road marathon. Um, But within like that first year that I was sponsored, uh, I ran a half marathon and I ran 117 and this was before I had a coach and this was me like training myself running maybe like three days a week or something like that and it was fun but then the very next week I ran a trail half marathon which I wouldn't do that nowadays like run half and half um, and I think I ran like 123 or something on the trails it's and 122 yeah <laughs> 122 oh you looked, you looked- it up <laughs> Oh, <laughs> I, l- I look up everyone's stats. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 122. And um, that was significantly just more fun to me. I had won the road one and then did the trail one. Um, but anyways, long story long, I am interested and I do want to run a road marathon. And I think why I'm more interested now is like I really know what my strength is now and my strength is strength. Whereas in college, mm-hmm. I was told like, you had to be running like 420. This is back when I was in college. It's probably like 415 now to even think that you could potentially be like a good 5K runner. Okay, then that makes you mm-hmm. a so-and-so 5K runner. That makes you a so-and-so 10K runner. And now my um, like idea of that has been completely switched. A lot thanks to my coach that, you know, 
the best 10k runners actually just double their 5k um and you know to like the best of the best, like the best 10K runners who don't have that next next notch of speed. Like I think of someone like Steph Rothstein, like she could just crank out a 10K. She might not be ever the best best 5K, but you sure as heck can put some 5K runners against her in the 10K. She's going to crank. Um, sorry, this is taking a long time to get to my point. So earlier this year, I put like six weeks towards speed training and I ran like a 9.33K and... Which weren't you 9.40 in college? Is that... Yeah, yeah. So the PR, (laughs) which was awesome, Um, and so in my head, I'm like, "Wow, I have so much more range now, and I don't really focus on speed that much. Like I'm Mm. in the mountains more than anything, and so being able to do that and do these long mountain stuff, I just feel like I could do a good road marathon. Um, Yeah, I just have to find the time and space for it, and that Kirk is actually the answer. Is like figuring it out. (laughs) when I'm actually going to do it and when it's going to be something that I'm more excited about than a trail race. Yeah. Do, do you envision having a hard time finding its place anytime soon? Cause I'm in the same, actually Bracken and I've had this conversation on the podcast about me checking the marathon box. Cause I think I can go sub two thirty, and that would be great for me. And I I'm running out of time, right. In a sense. Yeah. You know? So what do you think? What, how soon can we make that happen? I think next spring, because the plan this year was actually to do 3K, 5K, 10K, and PR and all of them. Um, like but the, that. yeah, <laughs> and then transition to trails. But uh, with, I just had a really hard work spring uh, with my job, and that just obliterated me, which I was really bummed about. Like, I was just working obscene hours and trying to train at the same time. And something had to give, and it was my running, unfortunately. Um, so next year, I'm just going to go for the marathon in the spring instead, because in Mammoth now with the winter, I can't get on the trails anyways. So it's just a good time to train for that. I like hearing this about your times and about your training, because recently I, we, we've been chatting a bit um, with some athletes about how there's two types of runners, essentially. There are those that run on a track team or cross country and they have to do that type of work to run fast and once they move to a marathon or to the trails or to the mountains they will never run fast again because they have to do that work and then there's the opposite type who they leave the track they go and they just build an all-encompassing engine they get durable they get bulletproof and then they jump into something and they pr they run real close to it And those seem to be the type of people who translate the best to the trails. And it seems like you have that. Like if you cut 10 seconds off your 3K time, 3K is even like outside the ordinary responder. 3K is too, it's too fast to get better on the trails there, but you, you somehow did. So like what, what can you point to in your skill set or in your background that, that would point to why that works for you? Like what most people can't do it, but you can. And you seem to be successful because of that. Um, thank you, by the way. Uh, I honestly give a lot of credit to my coach. He just says, I've always done okay. track stuff, even when we were doing trails. Um, we've always, like, we've always kept at least one track session, like, every three weeks. And so I gradually, over the years, uh, have built faster and faster legs mm-hmm. and even before this last weekend, I did a track workout 
and it felt even better than this spring and I was running sig not significantly faster but I think in the spring I was hitting my 300s like 53 54 so you're running real speed 300s aren't yeah. an ultra rep and then this but right before this race I was hitting 50 and it like felt like I was holding back and you know doing k and going through the 800 and like 234 or something so I think I ended up at 307 um and that's you know that's faster than I was doing before the 930 and this felt even better and this was after you know almost five weeks of back-to-back -back long runs so I honestly don't know I just know that it's working for me and mm -hmm. um I think it's just also kind of maybe like my build that I respond well to power stuff and my form cleans up really quick when I'm doing hill stuff um if I can get my knees up I can go faster is what I've realized isn't that funny if you would have told college Danny that the key to maintaining speed is to hit it you got to hit it at least once every three weeks yeah <laughs> you would have laughed like no that doesn't work yeah. and to most runners it's their form cleans up when they start doing speed work yeah. But to understand that, yeah, hill reps are enough for me. That's pretty powerful. Yeah. It was kind of interesting, though, in college because I think I knew this, but I wasn't brave enough to stand up for myself because every winter we really? would do, yeah, every winter we would do a hill circuit, like these hill circuits two times a week. And whenever I came off of them, I felt the strongest for the like 15 3K, then 5K, yeah, the 15 3K double. I always felt stronger and every year my 1500 time would start going down and I'd ask if we could do more hills and he's like no we're we've done that already whereas in my head I was like no I want those year round like I want to keep doing those um and then of course you know you're just you do what everyone else does and throw them against the wall and mm -hmm. see if you who sticks yeah going back to what you said something just a little bit uh earlier was uh you were fried from work uh I think a lot of us look at um athletes like yourself and think that we're living this this posh life, right? And it's just about frolicking in the mountains all day. You have your dancing on the mountaintop videos and all that. Like, life is just gravy, right? Uh, but we know it's not. And we understand that, um, that, like, there's real people living real lives. Why don't you talk about that for a second? Like, balancing uh, work, which sounds pretty demanding, with your training and then pressure to still perform. Like, most people that have these struggles don't have a financial tie to their performances yet you know you do in a way so like what's that like as a you know a pro athlete who has to make her real living another way how are you handling that um i would say i have probably felt more tired in the last couple of years I feel like when I first started doing it. <laughs> That's not the empowering <laughs> statement I expected. <laughs> well, honest. I Yeah. <laughs> It's, uh, I think in the end, it's just, it's hard. Um, and I, I guess I'm trying to think of how to say this. I would say the past three years, I've pushed so hard on both that now I feel like it's catching up to me a little bit in a weird way. Um, so I feel like now, especially after this spring, it was like, it was a, it was a hard month for me and that's probably the hardest month I've had with both of them in a really long time where I was like, Oh shit. Like I broke myself. Um, more so like, just what did mentally. that look like? Like how did like talk me? Like, what did that mean? Like you broke yourself? What does that look like? I, 
Okay, I know exactly what it is, actually. I can explain this. <laughs> um, my work started bleeding into my running. I feel most healthiest when I'm, like, able to comp comp uh, compartmentalize them. So when I'm running, I'm running. When I'm working, I'm working. And that has worked out really well for me. And this spring, as I was running, I was stressed about work. I was thinking what I had to do next. And it was creeping into pretty short workouts, like track intervals and you know to the point where I was kind of like you know oh, I just need to stop this workout I need to go work instead and like do these things and it was tough for me because I was already working so late and early but I will say like it was a very uh, unique situation in that I was transitioning jobs at work because I was reaching for the next big thing and it was kind of like a cross promotion sort of thing so that's what running had to give because I had to respect that I was making this career jump for myself that I'd worked really hard for. So let's just put time towards that. Um, and it was hard because I love running. Uh, but I also love progressing in my career and, and feeling, you know, success is there for the hard work that I've put in. So that's where I would say, like, I broke myself as I was trying to do both at a, a very top tier level and coming to terms with that feeling Feeling that I'm someone that can always push through, that that was probably the hardest part is like, okay, you can't actually do this. Um, so I had to wait to transition. So I was basically working two jobs, and then once I settled into this new job, they kind of bounced back out. That kind of brings up two things I want to hit. The first, though, is that oftentimes when you have this athlete who is like that pro slash semi-pro where we still have another job, but we want to go after sport, when push comes to shove, people quit their job and they go all in on sport why didn't you um i actually have been grappling with this more than ever this year so i i think in the past it's just been my job has been like my security blanket in a way and you know post-college i i knew what it was like to to struggle financially being a guide and to me guiding i loved guiding and it was something that I was really passionate about. Um, and so now having a job where I just feel secure and I feel fine, if anything happens, I can take care of myself, uh, mm -hmm. has kind of been what's driving, driving me. But more lately, I feel like all these people are coming to my life that are kind of like, just go for it, see what you can do. Like, what mm -hmm. is one to two years in your life? Uh, I'm still like in my 20s technically. Um, and so, but I'm almost 30. <laughs> um, so it's kind of like, if not now, then when, which is something I mm -hmm. say to people all the time. Um, so yeah, I guess it's a complicated answer for me right now because I'm actually like going through the pros okay. and cons of that. Yeah. Well, that has to be stressful because A, you're right. If not now, when? Yeah. But also like the responsible thing is to <laughs> provide for yourself stability, but also the sport is growing quickly. Like if you you look at the last few years, Maud went from untouched to people are pushing her or beating her. And on the men's side, you see the same thing. Killian used to be alone for the entire second half. Now there's people, you know, climbing with him, which is the second yeah. climb, which is unheard of. It used to only be the first <laughs> climb. And so to take a step back at a time when you know the female sport has taken a step forward, how stressful was that and maybe still is? Do, did you run into that? Oh, I'm not going to catch back up. I'm a step behind. The season's not going to, I have to readjust my goals. Or were you just content to say, I'm going to follow the process? Uh, 
I would say at first, if I think initially felt like the former, and then it quickly t- developed into the latter. Um, I think it's just like you know self belief, believing that I can hang with these women, even as everyone's getting faster. And I feel like last year really proved that. I mean, that was definitely I would say my best year, especially competing at the international level with the best you know sub ultra runners in the world. And mm-hmm. it was a lot of heart to heart conversations with my coach. It's just like, you think you can be one of the best, like you need to start racing the best more often. Uh, so we can figure out like where there is to improve. So I, last year I did a couple of American races, but this year I, I only did that last weekend and I don't plan on any more, uh, just because I learned so much last year about racing and what it does take to be the best and how aggressive you need to be, uh, et cetera. This seems to be the year of go all in on Europe. Jim's overdoing it. You're kind of doing it. Maybe not to the level of moving there, but the American athletes seem to understand that you can't dabble in their terrain. You have to understand it and live it a bit. Yeah, I think, at least for me, every time someone has gone over and proven themselves to Europe, whenever they come back to America, you could just tell they're on this whole nother level. And, Mm. uh, like, I definitely feel that myself. And, uh, you know, the rest of the world is starting to join in on, on the fun too. It's not just the Europeans, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, you have Asia, you have Africa starting to get involved too. And, you know, the more countries, yeah, (laughs) it's amazing, but I love it. Right. Cause Mm -hmm. like you want, you want everyone to be involved. Cause then you could actually like truly to see where you stack up in the world and stuff like that. Um, and I think the more countries that get involved potentially, the more conversations around it, you know, becoming more professionalized and Olympics maybe down the road becomes a little bit more realist uh, or real. Whereas right now it's kind of just like, you know, world championships or European championships. Um, So I think it's really good for the sport. I agree. Because there's always that one caveat with the ultra runner, which is, well, you're the best of who's tried it. Exactly. And that's, that's every sport. Yeah. But... When it's considered a second-class sport compared to road running or track running, unfairly, but yeah, logically to many people's minds, it's it's nice to see legitimate countries and athletes come out and throw their hat into it. Yeah, no, definitely. Or just, yeah, more legitimate. I will say the French and Spanish and Italians are crazy on the mountains. I misspoke. I shouldn't have said yeah. <laughs> in addition to the already legitimate. Yeah. So if you were to leave, if you were to, to, to go all in, like we, we have a, you know, we both still race OCR a good bit and, and I do some trail racing and we, we kind of do it all. But, um, in some instances we see the people that leave their jobs and go all in sometimes don't get any better. Sometimes fizzle out, right? They don't have anything else. They don't have a, a freedom from their new job, which is running and it changes the dynamic, right? And, from what I'm hearing work about, always follows you to run mm-hmm. when that happens. <laughs> Correct. Yeah, think about work while you're doing your intervals, or your intervals are your work. However, um, you also seem to be quite a responder to low stimulus, according to your racing history, in the sense where, like, you were running three times a week and then you went and crushed some of these trail races, right? So I guess my curiosity would be with that, and I don't mean I, I didn't know we would hone in on this part of your, you know, current uh, life status, but. Uh, like what would how would it look different would it be more like i have the freedom to go train where i want to train and do the things i need to do or would it look like more time investment like 
what would really be the perks other than I know there's stress involved with a, with a nine to five, we'll call it. Yeah, I would say I would definitely find something. I don't think I could ever completely just run. Like, um, I've always been a self-starter, always trying to, you know, in college, I was always hustling, you know, trying to figure out small business stuff, making my own jewelry and everything. Um, so I would definitely figure something out. I think for me is I'm just, I'm always tired and it would be nice to not feel tired. Um, (laughs) and you know, who knows, maybe I only need three months off and get a couple naps in and I'll go back to work. Um, but yeah, and also for me, I am interested in the longer stuff, like ultras. I, While I've had success in the sub-ultras, I really think my mind is made for longer stuff. Um, I think I was just so damn mm. stubborn to get this mountain marathon right, and I still think I can get it even better um, that I've stuck with it. Because um, definitely my first couple of marathons did not go very well. Um, and I was like, I can figure this out. <laughs> but yeah, the longer stuff... For me, I'm a very, for better or for worse, X plus Y equals Z. And I know that for me to do well in those long races, I'd have to run more. And I just, like, don't have the energy to do that right now with work. Um, so I think that's what it is, is maybe just more time to, to train uh, in, a, in a really good way. And luckily, my coach has been so great, like, gradually, you know, having me build my pyramid each year um, at a very slow pace. He never gives me something absurd, the, you know, quarter halves and years. What does volume look like now for you? Having tried the hundred mile thing, mileage in the trails is always a little bit relative because of vert, but what does volume look like for you these days? Um, well, I guess to put in perspective when he first started coaching me, yeah, it was like three days a week, 30 miles, 40 miles and 50 was huge, which I don't know how I went from 100 to 50 feeling like it was so much. Uh, Maybe because I was still kind of guiding and everything, and I was starting to work at a startup. And then over the years, I stuck at 60 for a while, for like a year, and then 70. Yeah, each year has kind of been tense. Nowadays, sorry, I'm like going off track. Um, I would say like 80 to 85 is my sweet spot. Um, sometimes I'll be a little bit under that, but my key is the weekends. So like for this training block, I think we went like 32, 35, 37, 39, 40 for like back to back long runs. And that's been like my bread and butter. Well, no wonder you're tired. You're back to back in every weekend. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. The weeks are You might easy, not though. need three months. You might need just a, <laughs> a week or two of singles. Yeah. I love them, though, because I gain so much confidence yeah. when I'm doing them. And uh, the weekends, you know, I'll try to rest as much as possible. But if I do, like, a mountain run and I can go out and run, like, 630s on the road for, like, a sustained long run, that that to me tells me I'm starting to get in shape. So, yeah. And honestly, that's the only time I have to put on mileage too. Yeah. Are you doing like the pretty, pretty short, small volume during the week, very manageable chunks, and then you're just swinging for the fences on the weekend and then rinse and repeat, I assume? Exactly. Yeah. So you're training like the average weekend warrior would who has a normal job where you just fit in what you can and really swing big on weekends. There's no difference. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Um, that's encouraging for us. <laughs> I would just say I love the back-to-backs also. Like, I I really enjoy them. So I also ask for that. 
um, because mm-hmm. I rather have just that extra time during the week. Uh, and I'll do a lot of short doubles too, like 40 minutes in the morning, 40 minutes in the evening. And I find that works better for me versus him putting 10 miles because then suddenly I'm working, waking up at 5 a.m. Um, and it, it suddenly feels a, a little obscene to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Does that do weekend back to backs often like this? Does it just cut out social life? Because are you just uh, smashed all weekend? <laughs> no, I actually that's that's also a f- I takes me away from training. I guess <laughs> I love hanging out with my friends, and so it'll normally be like. And luckily, some of my friends run even in Mammoth now. Um, so I'll you know do the three to four hour run in the morning, Saturday and Sunday, Saturday. Like, if I am feeling good, I'll take a nap, um, recover for a little bit, eat, and then I'll go to, like, a barbecue or, like, we'll go play cornhole or go to a local bar or something, hang out, watch sports or something. So this volume doesn't leave you destroyed and smashed. You can still live life. In the in the highest weeks, it's very, yeah, I'll kind of, like, chill out. Um, mm-hmm. But, uh, no. it. I don't know. That's a hard question. Like, I am tired. But I guess I just push through it because I want to hang out with people. And mm-hmm. that also fills my cup uh, in a different way. Those naps are huge, aren't they? It's like a whole night's sleep sometimes after a long run. That's the only way to survive social life and being an endurance athlete on the weekend. I think naps are the key to everything. Save me. Yeah, I wish I was better at them. They're very hard for me. Like, Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well work on it danny i know um but yeah doing those and then doing the speed workouts uh that helps me a lot too because i can see my fitness coming along very quickly if i'm able to run you know 20 and 15 and then rip 50s on the next wednesday or something are you reckless in training downhills or do you float them a little bit float yeah smooth as fast is like my mantra during training i rarely unless i'm given like a downhill interval i am not Mm. reckless at all like i yeah how often do you hit downhill intervals um this cycle probably every other week in my long run i would have like 10 to 20 minutes downhill Mm -hmm. when's the last time you ate it in training or racing uh, two days ago, actually. <laughs> I was say, your pal- you have the, the skid mark on your palm right now. Oh, <laughs> yeah, it was really dumb. Uh, well, it wasn't dumb. I was trying to say hi to this older couple, and it was, like, this really flat part, and they were really, I'm like, bonjour, and there was, like, this weird pipe thing that my foot got caught in, and I fell forward and scraped my knee up, but before that, I can't remember the last time I fell, honestly. Okay. Yeah. When you look at, um... Uh, like the roads versus the trails. Like, I don't know if I could ever go back to like running concrete or the track again, exclusively anyways, for sure. I think like yeah. some of our listeners are like road runners. Some of them are trail runners. Some do both. Um, sounds like obviously you had like a second lease on your athletic career by finding the trails, but like, what would you, if you had to describe the experience to somebody who didn't know both sides of them, like how would you describe like the roads and the track versus the trails in your mind. Like how would, how do you look at them differently if you were to help somebody understand? From like a comp, like showing up to one of the races sort of thing? Just like your relationship with it in general. Okay. So my, my I'm... personal relationship with these things. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Okay. So 
trail running is very free and expressive to me. Um, I like that you can, you have control in a different way uh, than the track or the roads because it all depends on your strengths, which is also going back to like kind of the course thing and kind of painting the picture that works well for you. Um, so I like, to me, it's always just, it's very expressive and it's up to the person whether they want to work on their weaknesses or not, but it kind of gives everyone a chance to shine because there's so many different aspects of it. So at an individual level, I think it's pretty cool. Um, and it's very, it, you can gain a lot of confidence from running on a trail, especially if you like being in the outdoors, like being able to say like you run on some, like I ran on that versus I hiked that. I think is really cool for a lot of people. Um, but the community itself is just so nice. And that's my favorite part of it. Everyone's very welcoming, pretty down, like very down to earth. Um, I had some family come out to the El Hierro uh, final last year for the Golden Trail World Series. And they were just taken aback by how humble and like how much humility there was amongst like, you know, the best sub ultra runners in the world. And I couldn't agree more with that. Um, every, everyone's just out there trying to do their best. And I think because it's not like a completely professionalized sport yet either, like a lot of people do work jobs, uh, everyone recognizes that everyone's putting, everyone's sacrificing something to be there, especially like those top tier athletes if they're also working. Um, it's, it's a choice to be there and to give that much time to it. So that's trail running. Um, track? I don't know. The thing is, I'm such a, I'm a running fan. So I love watching track and I love watching road. Track is just like, you have to be so perfect a lot of the time. And so I think that takes a certain personality to be okay with that. And you need to be on that oval a lot of the time too, uh, depending on your event. And so to me, it's just a, it's a smaller world with less room for error um, versus the trail, which is a much bigger world. Uh, so I think it, I respect track athletes because uh, there's a reason why I'm not doing track. I would go crazy having that much specificity um, with that type of attention to detail. I like being able to be wrong sometimes. And I feel like with track, there's less times for, that you can be wrong. Um, and then roads, road, road people are beasts be for roads it's just like the attention span on these people is incredible especially at the marathon level and so I just really respect them for that and that's why I like doing track and road stuff here and there because you have to it's a different yeah it's a different type of attention um that you have to give it you're just you're on the entire time whereas I feel like trail uh, as much as I hate to say this you can disengage at times in the the race and then still re-engage and, and be competitive. Whereas the roads, you're on the entire time. And uh, yeah, they're just they're just machines being able to hold those paces. I hope that covers all of it. <laughs> that was great. Those are great descriptions, yeah. Yeah. And you're you're right about the the focus of a trail. Because even if you're dialed in, power hiking dialed in versus flat dialed in versus descending dialed in, it's almost like one gets to refill while the other one gets dropped. Yeah. Yeah, that metronome aspect of road running is kind of terrifying to a lot of people who get used to the the vista and the, the just the the changing men mentality of a trail race. 
And on the track, there's no downhill to get you back into it or uphill to get you back into it or yeah, you're on that day or you're, you're screwed. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Watching an 800 this week. Um, a men's, well, NCAAs are on and then a bunch of people are trying to get their world qualifier in because that, that window is coming up quick here, but there was an 800 and the guy who led, they said faded badly over the last 100 and winner was like 144.1 and he was 144.6. <laughs> like when we think about that on a trail scale, five tenths of a second would have been like, I was every bit as good as that person. Yeah. Maybe my aid station should have been quicker. Where on the track, everyone's like, he had terrible strategy and he faded badly. He lost half a second in 150 meters. You know, so just like that, like you said, that, that, that focus is so fine that there's no room for being wrong at all. Yeah, I would 100% agree with that. I'm still trying to figure out, like, what is a respectable amount to lose in a race and trails? And it, I think it depends on the course and the distance. Um, yeah, as far as, like, calling a race close, right? Um, right? Yeah. But it's one of those, like, as soon as you fall off, you're done. In track and on the roads, they just step off the course. Yeah. Like Paul Chalimo just stepped off in his last race because he was starting to get dropped, and he's an Olympic silver medalist. People get dropped in ultras. It's kind of chic to finish. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's really hard to tell. And we, our, our sport, Kirk and I both do some ultra, and we do some trail, but we primarily have done OCR for the last couple of years. And someone's like, it was only a minute and a half between first and second. And the track runner enough kind of cringes like, uh, <laughs> I... Like it's embarrassing to lose by ninety seconds. Yeah. But in the grand scheme of things, on the on the trail, that might be really close. Yeah. Yeah. What What is that? How do you How do you judge it? What What's your system for judging how close it is? Um, I I haven't quite figured that out yet. I think it's usually what I'll do is like look at past times, you know, and see where second and third and fourth stack up, and I'm like, okay, that was a really good race, you know, especially if the first person's winning by a lot. Um, but in trail running, I just we love unorthodox heroes. Like we love people who do weird stuff. Um, like, uh, I think it was Dakota Jones. He biked to Pike's peak one year, ran the race, biked home. And everyone was like, that's so sick, you know, but if someone, and he, and he, I don't think he won, but if someone did that in like to a track or road race, people would be like, that person's an idiot. Why did they bike to the course right. and, and lose? Yeah. I think I like like the difference. Like, what's the most painful part of a track race? Probably the last 10% of it. What's the most painful part of a road race? Probably the last 10% of it. What's the most painful part of a trailer mountain race? Well, I got to choose between 10 different places because it was absolute hell, but also just as rewarding. And I think that, like, that if you're going to perform well, you need to go in and out of, like, that hate-my-life zone. And it's such a tactical game and there's so many ways to get better and so many ways to shit the bed and so many ways to do them both in the same race that like, I just, I don't know. I think there's just something about that ability to like outfox a trail out. Like, can you really outfox somebody in the 5k if they're truly better than you on the track? I don't know, but could I possibly show up and beat you even though you, you're more talented than I am? The answer is yes. And that's yeah. what I like about the trails that, that ability to go in and out of suck and also, like, turn a few heads once in a while and be like, Kirk wasn't supposed to do that. And I'd be like, I know. And that's why I was awesome. That's the best <laughs> part. 
Yeah, I would say so too. And people's different strengths, like, you know, you have a strong uphiller and a strong downhiller. There's always like, who's going to win this race, the uphiller or the downhiller? And it, a lot of times just depends on the course and like where the pushes are. Yeah. I, I want to, um, I, I got a lot of questions. I'm sure Bracken does too about this next week and then this race you have coming up at Mount Blanc, but I want you to bring us through, um, before we get stuck on too many details, like your professional career after um, you signed with Hoka, you realized, oh shit, like I'm in, I'm going to start really pursuing this. Like, what has your professional career looked like? How many years ago was that Hoka deal? Four? Uh, yeah, I think it was just over. This might be going into my fifth year, I think, if I finish this year. So you're okay. still new, relatively, to the yeah. mountain scene. Yeah. What's the, what's, walk us through these last four years. We got you up to this point. We know what you're doing coming up here in a week. Um, what, what, what about the four years in between everything? What's been going on with you? Oh man, front. I think just figuring out like what trail running is to be honest. And it's just, it's such a variety. So figuring out like, am I a niche trail runner? Can I be good at everything? I think that was probably a question that I had after I did my first overseas race because I had won a good amount of races in the U S that I was like, Oh, I can go over there and hang with them. And I got my ass kicked so hard. Um, I also just wasn't, what does that, what does your ass getting kicked look like? I think I was like top 20 or something. It was this race in Switzerland. It was called the Jungfrau marathon. And the first part is a road half. And then the second half you climb up the entire time, which I've, keep wanting to do that race but it keeps landing on the same weekend as like another race that I want to do that has a little bit more like prestige around it but it's a really cool race I just picked it out of random because I had never been to Switzerland and I had money to travel somewhere um and yeah I got my ass kicked but I also just like was very immature at the time around training and running and racing and taking it as seriously as I should have with, with a contract. So I like backpacked the entire week before, uh, was like eating ham sandwiches and like showed up the day before and then I raced. So that was also part of the first part of my career is I think just realizing how lucky I was to have a sponsorship. But if I'm going to play devil's advocate for myself, there weren't a lot of, um, Hoka runners at the time. I was like the only girl really, when they signed me, one of the few girls. And so um, I just didn't know the weight of that. Um, I I didn't have like role models to look up to. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. Um, so yeah, then I just did uh, a lot of US races, found this Sky Series, I think in 2018, I learned what that was. Um, so I did the US circuit and won that. And they had a uh, one world sky running race in the US and I got second. And it's hilarious because last year I showed up and I guess like I am like that's where people know me from here is that one second place which I thought was so funny because uh yeah um and then so that was 2018 trying to figure out if I wanted to be a sky runner that's what it was because I loved downhills and technical stuff and I learned that U.S. sky running was very different from European sky running um, and learned that I didn't want to go that route because you're, it was very technical, but you're moving much slower through the mountains and I wanted to move faster. 2019, I tried my first 50k and I won it. That was the US championships. Um, and then the rest of that year was pretty good. I think I got like top 15 at Worlds, 
but I still wanted like that top 10. Maybe I was top 20. I can't quite remember. Um, and that year was very hard with work too. I went to Australia like three times. So that was another year where I was like, this is tough doing client stuff over there. Let's talk about your 50, your 50 K, uh, us champ, uh, your first time running a 50 K and you win the U S champs. Um, not pretty typical, I would assume. What, yeah. <laughs> uh, how did that race unfold? I remember I saw those results and I was creeping on you before this interview. How did that, how did that race unfold? How did you end up pulling that off? Um, that was my first time doing back-to-back long runs and I just like gained a lot of confidence from it. And, um, I, at mile 10 pulled away thinking that I had much less to go and then, <laughs> um, just held on for the the fight to the front but it was actually it's so interesting because the girl who got second to me rachel drake she's amazing runner as well um on the international stage and that race was actually i didn't realize how pivotal of a moment that was for both of us um because since then we've been really good friends but i think it just elevated both of our confidence because the um the course was shit like it had snowed the day before which it never snows in auburn the water, all the water crossings were like up to our hip or higher. Like one came up to my chest. Um, it was so deep and it was freezing. Like it was absolutely cold. And we both ran, like we almost beat the all time mark despite that. And the girl who had the record was there and she's like, it was sunny and 65 when I was running, not doing what you guys were doing. Um, and for us at the time, like she was, a, she still is like, she's an amazing ultra and we're like, oh shit, like. We were really close to that. Um, but yeah, uh, that was pretty funny. I probably got more attention than I'd ever had before for winning that 150K. And that just reinforced that I America loves ultras because everyone was like, oh, you're going to do 100Ks and 50 miles and 100 milers. And it was like a big like, psych. I actually haven't done one since until this year. <laughs> Why do you think that is? Because I look at a, a teammate of yours, technically a teammate, uh, Joe Gray. And I think Joe is probably one of the most underrated athletes on the entire planet. 100%. He's so utterly dominant. Yeah. And wh- America kind of doesn't care. Yeah. Because he's sub-ultra, as you put it, sub-ultra. That, that sub-ultra distance, I don't know who beats him. You know, it, yeah. would take, it would take all the best in the world to try to stop him on these, on these courses, but he doesn't run... 50k 50 mile 100 mile 100k no one not no one but the vast majority of people don't care and don't list him when they talk about the best runners in the world so what is uh, why america doesn't even care about the metric system so why do we suddenly then what is your take on that i i honestly don't know and i'm still trying to figure that out um i think just there's been there's around our ultra distances we have really good storytelling uh, again, across our iconic ones, so Western mm-hmm. States, Hard Rock, Leadville, Run Rabbit Run, they all have a story behind them, and I just think we we love that. We love the lore um, and the history. Whereas like the sub ultra, it's just like, oh, it's something that you do to get ready for ultras. That's how right. you like. That's like the gateway is to do a sub ultra, then you start doing the long stuff. And honestly, it's a lot of stuff from sponsors. Like I won't say which ones, but I know many people across the board are you know they get you know these are the races we like and there's not a lot of sub ultras on there if any um so it's just kind of like i don't yeah i think it's a few things um but europe does it right because 
they love all the distances and they give them all equal love and equal attention and coverage. And mm -hmm. uh, I think there's a strong respect, which is why also it's really fun to race here and do those for those distances because it's, it's a whole, completely different kind of hurt. Like you, yeah. you're hurting all of them, but like these marathons will be redlining like 90% of the time and people respect that, which I appreciate. Yeah, the, the putting the emphasis on a certain distance has always rung false to me because anyone who says one distance hurts less than the other hasn't raced it because they all hurt different, but they all hurt. If you're racing it, it doesn't matter what your threshold is. You have a threshold for that race and you ride that line. Yeah. And and we seem to think longer is more glamorous. And it probably started way back in the, you know with Dean or whoever who sold the first book based on doing a crazy you know David Goggins and all of that who glamorized the epicness of running yourself into the hospital. Yeah, I think it's because it's slightly different. It's it's our biggest different differentiator when it comes to running because yeah. you can get a marathon on the roads and we do have iconic marathons that are huge that also have huge stories behind them. So that space m might be already filled, like, in a lot of people's minds, whereas, like, oh, 50 mile? That's something out of the ordinary. That's a normal. Yeah. So I, uh, I, I asked you a follow-up question about your 50K, and then we stopped your progression there, um, <laughs> which is my fault as a host. What, what, so what happened after that, then? Um, I got a lot of congratulations. Like I said, I got a lot of attention for that, and then... Uh, the rest of that year was kind of okay, and then it was 2020. Um, and, yeah, 2020 was hard, just, like, from my own personal life. Like, I lost some people through that, and uh, racing-wise, I love racing. Like, I raced way too much in the beginning of my career. That's a point that I didn't say. Way too much. Um, and, yeah, so I also miss racing. But, yeah, it was a good year for me to reset because – Ultimately, that's what helped me move to Mammoth Lakes was it was part of that if now not when and I'd been training at sea level and I knew my friends who trained at altitude and I would race against them and part of me just felt like I was training with one arm behind my back just because a lot of the races that I liked were at high altitude and I'd always like get away with it but I knew that I was at a disadvantage you know when you're racing at 8,000 it's a little tough i complain about that into perpetuity living here at 800 feet so <laughs> you're preaching to the choir there danny yeah um so yeah then i moved to mammoth lake so i would say that's the best thing that came out of 2020 did you go after a golden ticket that year no no why was that 2020 or 20 oh after i ran the 50k mm -hmm. um i don't know to tell you the truth I think part of me was going back to I knew how much work I put in to get to that 50K, and I didn't have enough time to put in more. And it was just like, it was so clear my, why I did okay, and I knew what I, yeah, that's essentially what it okay. is. Yeah. I think that's fair. And I think that's most of our, in the past, Kirk and I have both said, it's the reason we've never tried a road marathon. It's because we know what you're going to have to do to attack a road marathon. And yeah. it's a commitment. But that's kind of interesting, right? Like you could also just go and run a road marathon. And I tell myself I could run a hundred K and it's okay for it not to go well, but there's something about me yeah. that if it's not, if I didn't put the effort into it, then I don't want to do it. Cause suddenly the time matters again on the road. So that track mentality yeah. sneaks back in. Yeah, exactly. 
suddenly there's an Olympic standard and you got yeah. <laughs> eye that and then you have your friends PRs and what you would consider in your mind an acceptably fast time to have on your resume. Like if I got that, I could be done and suddenly it's back into track mentality. Exactly. But then at the same time, like the best athletes have failed at some point. So why not just have a starting point? I'm just, I'm the same way. I struggle with this. I'm like, oh, you could just get a time and then just try more next time if you just want to try it out. But And learn from it and then schedule some specific training and then do it. But exactly. <laughs> Such is life. <laughs> What's so messed yeah. up about that is like, let's say you want to run 235 or something. Let's just say. And you go out there and you're like, I know I could go run like 245 any day right now. I could just go do it. I know I could. And people from the outside will look at you and be like, well, go do that. It's two, It's t- only 10 minutes away. It's so close. And you're like, are you kidding me? I don't want that on my resume. I know I can run 235. I have that weird thing. Like, I think I could go out and run, let's say, 235 maybe tomorrow. But 230? My ego can't take it if I go try for 230 and I don't hit 235. It's this weird thing. But I don't care where I'm at on the trails. It's about effort. and just interesting. You're going to have to shift the mind a little bit. It's going to be interesting for you, huh? Yeah. And I, you know, for better or for worse, I've had multiple coaches, my coach, and then just other coaches I've come across say like, you could run X amount of time. And so now that time is in my head. It's like, Mm. I should be able to at Mm. least do that. Um, what time are they telling you? Come on. Uh, like two thirty three, two thirty five, just based off of workouts and stuff. Um, so this is intriguing to me. So you're nine to 33 K which that's not your ceiling clearly. And you're 1630s, 1640s for 5K, which are all very good times. But they're not something that would worry a road runner or a track runner. And then you get to the trails and you worry people there. And you're worrying people who can run faster than some of those times. And I think you could too. And I'm sure you believe you are probably a sub-16 5K, you know, if you just get into one. But... We've been trying to quantify what that component is for broken running or running under duress or whatever it is. What is the missing component that you have that the people who translate with massive running that don't ever translate that to the trails? Like, Why are you exceeding your running on the trails and in the mountains? Um, it's funny cause I happened this past week and someone showed up to the race thinking they were going to win. They had very, yeah. very good PRs and, uh, in they the got Colorado smashed. Area. Yeah. yeah. I, I love when people show up thinking they're going to win and if they do sick and then I'm like really impressed. But yeah, I think early on in my career, I would look at PRs and I'm like, Oh, this person has this PR. And over mm-hmm. the years I'm like, meh, <laughs> we'll see mm-hmm. on the trails. Um, I think it's a different kind of hurt to be honest. It's not like that. It's not a marathon hurt, but it's, uh, like, you have to lean into a type of hurt because, like, especially on the downhills, you're choosing to go as, you can either let gravity take you or you can run that effing downhill. And when you run that effing downhill, it hurts. And um, I guess it's also a choice on the roads, but I just have felt myself go through pain like phases of pain and I'm willing to go there to where like my body feels numb and it's uh and then you go back uphill and it's a completely different kind of hurt and it, it's a hurt in your back and your soul and your lungs um so I think it's just like it's a variety of hurts and 
you know, hours of time. Whereas I feel like in a marathon, at least for me in my short experience of road workouts and stuff, it's like, if you're fit, it'll start hurting around the last 10 K and you expect it to hurt at that 10 K and almost like clockwork, it starts hurting at that last 10 K. If you're feeling supernatural, maybe the last 5 K, um, and the, the marathon is just like, you're hurting at the 3K, the 10K, the 12K, the 20K, um, and mm-hmm. they all feel slightly different. So, yeah, I think that might be what it is. I like that. And you do have to lean into the effort, too, because you can get into a rhythm in, sure. a, in, a, in a marathon. Yeah. You know, you can just run the highest end aerobic you can hold and hold. And that, that isn't really a thing on the trail because you're going to spike constantly. Yeah. And it's different rhythms, uphill and downhill and mm-hmm. stuff. Yeah. Imagine if you took a trail marathon heart rate graph, but told somebody you did that on the road. They would, they would look <laughs> at you and be like, "What on earth is this psycho doing?" But that's that's exactly the glory, being able to come in and out of hurt and even surpassing hurt in some regard, and then different types. It's great if you have a little ADD like I do. It's fantastic. You can distract yeah. yourself every five minutes. <laughs> but yeah. Anyway, it's just something interesting. What were you going to say, Bracken? Yeah. Well, you already said your strength is strength, but how do you go from a 943K in college or a 1644 5K to, yeah, everyone around me thinks I can run low 230s in my debut marathon. Because if you crack 230, you're a player on the national stage. Yeah. So... My coach tells me that all the time. (laughs) Yeah. Your coach is right. And everyone around you is probably right that you can do that. But 1644 wouldn't say, yeah, go pop a 232. Yeah. What, what has been the, obviously you said strength and volume and all those things, but you still have to go back to running a road stride. Like what changed over the years for you? Um, I think I'm just like physically stronger. Like I'm not afraid to be strong and I rather feel strong than anything else. Mm. And, uh, my efficiency as a runner has definitely developed over time as that strength has come along. Um, and I'll do like weightlifting and stuff like that, whereas maybe in college I shied away from that. And I train very easy on my easy days, hard on my hard days. I learned how to rest. Um, and my ego is much more out of my way than it used to be, where I felt like everything had to be perfect all the time. Um, and really focusing on the effort and looking at the bigger picture. And I can't take full credit for that. I honestly, my coach that I've been working with for the last four to five years, it's like not only been his belief in me, but like really focusing on like widening my scope and, and, you know, stacking those weeks over and over again. And it's really the repetition that gets you there and the consistency more than anything. And uh, he always tells me like, you don't win a race in one workout. Like you got to string them together. Uh, Better for worse, just string the work together. Um, but yeah, you've mentioned him a number of times. So we got to ask at this point, who is your coach? Oh, <laughs> uh, his name is Terry Hall. He's out of Santa Barbara. Um, he primarily coaches road marathoners. And so that's where, you know, him throwing times at me has come from because he gives me some of those same workouts many of the times, but I'm doing them on tired legs and on trail legs uh, or after back to back long runs. And so he sees, sees things. <laughs> so I don't want you to give away what he does. But there's, I think the least explored style of training is sub-ultra and ultra training in terms of everyone does it their own way. So what has your formula become? 
How do you structure your training? What type of quality do you like to have? How many times do you like to hit quality? Because that's, you can't typically, some people do, but you can't typically do your short speed workout, long speed workout, long run, maybe a tempo run in there as well. That doesn't work for trails. So what has your formula become over the years? And I'm interested also because you started with a marathon road coach. So I'm sure he's had to grow and adapt with it over the, over the years as well. Oh yeah. It's definitely been a learning process together, but I would say like the most staple week is easy Monday, double or one single Monday, easy or completely off. Um, Tuesday doubles, Wednesday speed with a double if I'm like up on mileage and it's always like road or track. Like it's rare that that Wednesday's on the trails. Um, doubles Thursday, easy Friday, and then workout Saturday, whether it's in a longer run. And that alternates between a road and a mountain uh, workout. And then Sunday also alternates road mountain. So sometimes I'll have like mountain road, road mountain, mountain mountain, or road road. And that's always like that. kind of switching around. Um, so we found that works for me. And do you change your speeds on your Wednesdays throughout the year? Or is there a spot that you respond well to? Um, it definitely changes throughout the year, but it's mm -hmm. not uncommon that I'm running at least 520 pace or faster. I would say like in this last year, a lot of those Wednesdays are between like 430 and like 515 pace. Okay. So you're running the gamut, like mile pace through 10K a lot of your work. Yeah, definitely. Are they multi-pace workouts or are they standalone? Um multi-pace i would say yeah. he he gives me a lot of like odd linked things yeah i rarely do like an exact 200 an exact 400 eight or mile it's always like 1k or 600 or something like that and um sometimes they'll have floats in them um yeah. and i'm trying to think if there's anything else yeah it's so weird because in college i had a lot of staples like 12 by 400 four by mile and I probably haven't done that in years. It's a lot of like weirdly matched things that I know he's calculating in his head uh, that at first I was like, this is weird. Why am I doing this? And then over time I've seen it work. And I will say like the fast float has been the most translatable to trails. Rip, like rip that. the up and downs. Yeah. Yeah. You were starting to say, and I really like that because we were talking about the type of speed work you do and I stopped you. So what do you really like about that? The speed workouts? Yeah. Uh, they just give me a lot of confidence. Um, with track being my background, it's the most fitness indicating thing to me. Like, there's a certain point on the trails where they, I can tell, depending on the trail, like, oh, if I can run up this grade without hiking, I'm starting to get fit. Um, but the track is the most translatable for me. So I still have a bit of that, like, very measured mind that I like to uh, feed uh, each week or every other week so I know where I'm at, especially when I moved to altitude because that was really hard for me, to be honest, in <laughs> 2020 because in like Santa Barbara, I'd be hitting quarters at 71s. And then when I moved to um, Mammoth, my first work, I couldn't break 80. And I was just like, holy shit, I am starting over again. Uh, this is going to be tough. But yeah, within like the year, I started getting down. I haven't quite gotten to 71s. Like I've hit it a couple times, but my sweet spot's like 73s about right now. Um, so hoping to get that more down since it's higher. 
All right, do you have more follow-up questions on our training bracket? Because we could make a whole episode out of it, I know. Yeah, yeah, I, I had two still, Kirk, if you can. Mm. Well, you can go right ahead. Me. I'm just trying to keep us rolling. Well, the first is that to the average ultra-slash-sub-ultra athlete, they would have no use for mile or 3K or 5K work. And we've we've talked about it before, but sometimes like it's like hearing something from your parents versus hearing it from your cool uncle. Like they've heard it from their parents a bunch. I think people need to hear it from their cool aunt here, which is why does a mountain marathoner and marathon is almost even not the right term because these can take four hours. Yeah. You know? So <laughs> why do you need mile and three K work in your schedule other than just confidence? Oh, why is your time not spent better just grinding up mountains? Just a form efficiency. The more smooth you are running uphill and downhill, the easier the whole race is going to feel and be. Um, and I like having gears in my pockets because when you're racing these people, you got to pull out tricks and continue to pull them out. And uh, my speed has saved me last year, especially. So many times there was, I'll use an example. So we were on this course, El Hero, which was the final. And I went and checked out the whole thing. And there's this, like five mile section at the beginning of the race that I knew immediately. I'm like, I could run five thirty, five forty on this and it won't break me, but it will break a lot of other people. And that's exactly what I did. I like went into the race, put myself in position, strung the whole, like the pack that I was in out, um, had a couple people following me and I was like, that worked right to plan. Cause we have another climb coming up. And that was where I started moving into third or moved from fifth to fourth. And like that part didn't take it out of me at all. And so having that speed was like amazing. Uh, there was another race where like, there was a part of the course I was running like four thirty pace and it was hard, but it what it wasn't like, this is out of my range. Like I can do this. And that moved me right into the place I needed to get into the final. Um, so it's stuff like that where it has come in handy every single race that I've run where it's not scary to me to run that fast downhill, which is one of the things. And then the flat parts, just I'm, I can relax during them and save my legs for the climbs and stuff. That's perfect. That, that was way better said than Kirk and I ever can. <laughs> Thanks. I like that. I like it. All right. Last thing then. Kirk loves the long workout. He loves jamming a workout in the middle of the long run, probably more than anyone else I know. And it seems like it's a staple for you to the point where you only do two quality a week and one of them's in a long run. I'm not saying ever, but you said your stereotypical week. Yeah. So what do you love about that? And what does a stand, like your most typical one look like? Um, It's usually a broken tempo. Um, It's very rare that I'll do just like a power hour or something. If I do a power hour, there's something before and after. Uh, mm-hmm. to it um but a lot of times it's a like power hour being like going and running like just sub threshold for now like just going and grinding basically yeah exactly yeah yeah exactly that would make your long run more difficult so i could see yeah <laughs> unique training <Definitely>. strategy um <laughs> uh, it's usually like five to 15 minutes um i rarely go past 15 minutes and it'll be you know multiple of those in some variety of five tens and 15s and then what i appreciate my uh, about my coach over the years if we we've made it more specific so it's like you know 15 minutes up 15 minutes down or three 15s up 30 minutes down uh depending on the train and then we look at the course together that we're that i'm training for 
and then I'll send him a route and then he'll look at it and be like, yeah, looks good. And I'll tell him where I think I should be at different parts of the course. Um, so yeah, that's pretty much it. Um, and then I guess another one is like just a drawn out, uh, like faster paced run on tired legs is Mm -hmm. another thing. Yeah. Or five minute floats on and off. Love the floats. You're a floater. Yeah, <laughs> we we had a little debate on on uh, this uh, podcast a while back about defining the float. Why don't you define what the float is for us? What kind of pacing are we talking? What kind of effort are we talking float there? Um, there is a wrong way to do a float. Uh, definitely, <laughs> there are many wrong ways to float. <laughs> that's why that's why it's worth the conversation. Yeah, it's like the word tempo. Yeah. You're going to talk to 20 people and 20 people are going to tell you 20 ways to do it. So what is the Danny Moreno float? It's something where I have to pay attention to pace. It shouldn't be natural. So to me, floats should be attentive and they should be at a pace where it's not destroying you. um, But you should start to feel gradually tired on the floats if you're doing it right, in my opinion, because you're actually hitting the designated pace. And um, yeah, ideally your floats aren't super close to like the target pace because the the gear shift i think is what is most critical to learn in like a neurological pathical like pathway way so that in the race like you know what it feels like to pick it up and slow down and that's just baked into your brain so would that be like in your mind let's say you're you're shooting for let's just round numbers 530 pace on miles and you're getting a quarter mile float recovery would that be like, I'm hitting my miles in 5.30 and I'm floating at 7-minute pace? Or are you talking, I'm hitting 5.30 and I'm floating at 6.15? Like, what are, you, what are we talking here, if you had to be more specific? I would say, like, 5.30, 6.30. Okay. Yeah. It's easy play pace plus a deviation. Like, one notch faster than what you'd want to do. Yeah, exactly. Because that attentiveness, I think, is really important. Cause you could, ju- I feel like I could just run seven minute pace without thinking about it, especially in a workout. But six thirty, I have to be looking at my watch. Hmm. I've heard a lot of people talk about this, and I've talked about the float. Cause a lot of my marathon friends, they love the float. That's like, <laughs> there's a lot of stuff, you know, ins and outs. It's really more of ins and outs. Yeah, float fan club. <laughs> yeah, it's a little closer together usually when they in and out. Yeah. And it's always talked about from like a lactate discussion i've never yet heard from the psychological pathway of change your gear so you're you're training a race weapon as much as you're training the physiology and that's oh for sure that's pretty cool yeah my are you the cerebral racer are you the kg veteran (laughs) uh yeah i guess so i i think so this is like kind of side topic but like i love music and like the patterns of music and I find that I have a very close connection with patterns and racing too in those kind of connections with your brain uh yeah because probably three times now you've mentioned something casually about change of pace or tactics or surprising people during races and that usually doesn't come up in these talks people seem like you you spend more time with strategy and with maximizing your way to disrupt other people's or run something out of them or surprise them or just capitalize yeah to me trail running is really about like resource allocation throughout the race 
And so the better strategy you have, the better you can allocate those resources. The resources being your skills and your fitness. And then kind of like the cross point of those. Um, so yeah, I think approaching it with a plan and trying to like, obviously the plan needs to be adjusted based on other people's plans. Um, but I think a lot of people race other people's races in trail running. And I've learned that if I work to what I know is going to set me up for the best last 10k or 20k, um, especially last year, I learned to really trust my gut that, uh, when I see a race profile, I'm like that spot, that spot, that's where I expect people to die. This is where I'm going to take them over, but you got to trust yourself here in the race in order to get that, to get there, um, has really like transformed my running racing. Just continually refresh you mentally hitting each little, like check that part off. Okay, good. Check that rather than I'm going to hang on till I can't. And the only thing that can happen is I succeed or I get dropped. Yeah. I think there's a time and place for that, you know, to take chances for sure. For sure. Um, but yeah, in these long races, like any, I would say two hours and less, I'm more inclined to maybe do a little bit more, uh, brave moves like that and just try and hang on. Cause it's a shorter amount of time, but these four five hour races i'm finding that strategy really helps um especially if i as i have a lot of friends that are in ultras and i see the ones that do strategize have a lot of success and to me i'm like you know four to five hours really is kind of a long time it feels short in the race but there's a lot of time to make mistakes and if i can capitalize on other people's mistakes uh it'll get me that much further up in the results that's how you know you're built for the uh, maybe the longer stuff. When you say four to five hours doesn't feel that long during the race. Is that what yeah. you quote you on <laughs> yeah. that? That's oh, no, I said it do- It doesn't seem like that long, but it is. No, it definitely is. Yeah, your yeah, body yeah, will yeah. remind <laughs> you at some point. I, I want to propel this conversation uh, to the future. I think we're at that point here as I'm looking at the time. Um, why don't you tell us what you got coming up next week, Danny? What, what are you out in France for? Why don't you just tell us? Yeah, uh, it's the Mont Blanc Marathon, and it's the second stage of the Golden Trail World Series, uh, which is the series that I placed fifth in overall last year. Okay, and um, we were just talking about strategy. We were just talking about, I don't know, let's say hopes and dreams and what we're hoping and intending and planning to do and all of that. So, like, just walk us through, like, somebody who takes this race seriously enough to go out a week and a half early. When did you arrive in France? Uh, Yesterday. Yesterday, okay. Yeah. So we can have early. Um, what does this week lead in look like for you? And then I want to get to like your intentions for the race, if you're willing to share some of it. So what's, what's yeah. this week and half look like leading up to the race now that you're overseas? Um, so today I did what I think is the hardest and most critical part of the course, uh, just because I wanted to see that ASAP, uh, just based off the profile. Um, so today I did that. And it's not like I'm running uh, it's like hiking running where's the race i hopefully will run a lot of it um and then tomorrow i'll do the first part of the course with a workout to get my legs feeling fast uh getting the engine starting to go and stuff like that that'll be like three to five minute pickups at you know good pace um and then double and then the day after that i'll do the last part of the course it's kind of like a, a last long run because that'll be about like 13 miles that i'll do um, and then the rest of the week is just maybe some double short runs and some like short pickups, but I don't really do any efforts on uphills starting 10 days out. Um, I just find that works for me. I rather stick to the flat stuff. I've already put that work in. 
I know that engine's there since I raced this last Sunday, so don't need to, to mess with any of those energy stores. That makes sense. So, um, interesting. So, I guess, first of all, are you at elevation there? Yes, I think we're at, I think the valley's at like 3,000 feet, and then the course tops out at maybe just below 7,000 feet. Okay. It's like so, 65. So coming from elevation, Mammoth's at what? I don't know, seven, 6,000, 7,000 feet? Yeah, I live at like just 8,000 feet, yeah. Oh, oh nice. Right, you're up there. So this that's not a consideration for you with this travel or acclimation or attempting to to do any of that. Um, how, how far out from like a big race like this do you like your last like real hard effort where you're like, I'm going to go to the well today? And maybe you'll save a little, but you know what I mean? Like that last one that really sucks. How far out are we looking? That was two weeks ago. We did, I think, like 24 miles with some longer stuff in it. And I was definitely tired after that. Um, and then I did race last weekend, but we purposely chose a 10K uh, so I can, like, move my legs much faster than the marathon. Um, but I don't feel, like, super beat up from that. I'm, I'm more tired from the travel, if anything. And... Yeah, I, I gained confidence from that race. So if there wasn't a race, I would have done some sort of like short, hard thing. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. I like hearing that because I've made this mistake myself a few times now and I won't ever again. Trying to sneak in my last long effort like two weeks out before something I care about. And two weeks seems like plenty of time. Like it's two weeks. You're going to be fine. Uh, maybe it's my age. Maybe it's just my myself. But I like that three plus week. I, I feel like that's going to that's gonna ride out. It just sounds like a little bit of the formula you guys are prescribing and then in between start getting some shorter, stingy stuff to make the race seem more comfortable if we can use that word. So I like it. Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot of like um, just because you can, should you sort of thing at that mm -hmm. point. Uh, we put in a lot of long miles, especially for this race. So I guess it depends on the, on the sort of race, but three weeks out last long run. And then it's all about just like sharpening confidence, just like knowing what gears you have and, uh, going from there. What is the biggest like duration workout? What's the longest you go in training? Distance or like time workout time. Time. Um, I don't know. I would say that one, let's say that was, it was like 60 minutes, maybe 70. No, maybe I've done. Yeah. Cause I've definitely done like an hour with stuff. Oh, sorry. Rarely. Let me rephrase like long run. What's the longest long run time on feet? Do you, uh, do you go longer than three or four hours or do you stay under that? Uh, I definitely have done some longer than four hours. Yeah. Depending on the train. How often do you do that? The last few weeks, maybe I did that, or this training block maybe twice, um, okay. but I'm a mileage person. I, I like miles. I rather have miles than time. Okay. Um, yeah. Rather miles than time and you're a trail runner. Yeah. <laughs> huh. Old so, habits, right? I know. <laughs> yeah, they never die. You, you did get a watch now, though, I assume. That habit left you, right? Yeah, you, you but it's like not working lately, mm -hmm. but whatever. <laughs> I suppose if it had to happen to anyone, it's best that happens to you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it works for, like, intervals, but, like, uh, normal runs, it'll – I'll run with someone, and their watch will say, like, eight minutes, and mine says, like, ten minutes for the first mile. When I upload it, it's really weird. But, yeah. Anyways. <laughs> um, so let's look at Mount Block then. So 
what are, what are we thinking, Danny? What are our hopes and dreams? What do we what do we believe we're capable of? Have you have you started to formulate a plan? You don't have to give that away, of course, but what are we what are we hoping for? What are we looking at here? Um, I'm feeling pretty strong that I can do a podium, um, and then winning is definitely on my mind. Uh, I just need to see a few more things on the course, just how everything's feeling. And last week's race just or on Sunday at the GoPro games, it just like, it felt really good. And it honestly was kind of a surprise to me because the last time I did a trail race was last October. So that is actually the longest time I've gone without trail racing since I began trail racing. So I was a little um, nervous about how that first race would feel. Um, But it ended up feeling really good. And everything just felt like it was firing, like climbing, descending, flat. the short flat uh section so yeah what's your best finish to date in one of these four fourth fourth yeah you know you know your competition well and so for you to toe the start line and say like winning isn't out of the question and it'd be you'd be lying if you said it wasn't on your mind if you're gonna do that i know you said you have to see the course and all that but like if you're gonna do that how would it how would it have to happen uh that middle section needs to go how i want it to go so essentially the course is it's like 8k that's pretty runnable then you gain about a thousand feet um within like a mile or two and then you descend and then you gain uh 2500 feet in two miles but that's not the kicker it's actually you lose 3000 feet in just under three miles uh, so it's very steep, very fast. It, the technical parts you can fly on, and there's a fire road. So you, it's like a straight down fire road, essentially. Um, and then after that, you then start climbing again for, I think it's about five, 10K. And then you descend again with another 5K. Um, so I think the key is like, if you survive that middle part and you feel good, then you can crank and catch people that second part. So fly downhill, use that Danny downhill, and <laughs> then if everything pays off, you turn to go run uphill, and somehow you still have legs that move somewhat quick uphill left, correct? And that's where that those gaps are really going to form, I would assume, if I broke down a course. I'd be like, there's going to be minutes of shifting going on here. Is that kind of what you're outlining? Yes, except not flying downhill that feeling so comfortable on downhill I'm actually holding back um, because that will shred your quads which would probably affect the uphill because in my head if I'm chill on my downhill maybe I'll lose three to five minutes but if you could run uphill again you could gain 10 to 12 minutes where's your rip it off and go point on course at what point do you cash in all the chips that are remaining I would say like that like as soon as you start that climb just a gradual pedal push on the gas and you just like gain gain momentum and then that last downhill you just like i better be like crying because i'm in pain um if i want to (laughs) win so the great world-class descenders still have their quad shredded you never grow past that you just get better at it yes it's more that you can do it over and over again I think okay. world-class descenders can descend that, like, quad shredding stuff 
three, four, five times in a course. Then where people kind of fall short is they do it on the first downhill, maybe even get away on the second downhill, but they can't do it past that. Yeah. And then their climbing's gone. Yeah. Okay. So one thing that strikes me as unfair, but maybe there is no such thing as fair in this sport, but as unfair is that Europeans at European races, they have people everywhere and they carry the bare minimum and they just hand off and they're bottle in, bottle out, and they're set. Yeah. And a lone American coming over is always at a disadvantage in that regard. You cannot have a streamlined race without it. So how do you combat that? What are you going to do with this? Because every single time I'm power hiking or running uphill watching this, I think, look at that. They had, and it's like, it's like the Tour de France. They've got this whole p- crew of people that are ahead and they know what's coming and they just grab and go. It's not even at a checkpoint. They just have their people wherever they want. And that's, that's like, it's, I, I get a sense of anxiety for the American racers. Like, oh, you didn't even know you could do that. So what do yeah. you do? Yeah, did you watch the first uh, video of that series? When they said you couldn't and it turned out you could? Yeah, that was tough. That was really tough. Um, they even spent some time and allowed that in the interviews to be shown. Yeah. Which I feel like they usually don't allow complaining or like criticism. Usually it's all peppy and happy. That was, Sorry, uh, I'm plugging this in really quick. You do what you gotta do. We're almost there, Danny. <laughs> so anyway, that like that was terrifying to me. That made me think if I ever race overseas or wherever, I have to have some people in place. Yeah. So what do you do? Like, how can you come over a week and a half and have a team with you when you're not Solomon or you're not La Sportiva, who their world revolves around these races? What do you do? Um, unfortunately, you have to deal with it if you have nobody. Um, you don't so, seem like someone that would leave it to chance. Yeah. Well... That first race last year, that was a misunderstanding of the rules, I guess, that, you know, something got changed or whatever. Or a misunderstanding of self-sufficient. We'll leave it at that. Um, the second one, that one did suck. That was Kim Gal. You could get help. I just had no one there, and that was a bummer. Um, Sky Rune was short enough that I got away with it, which was lucky because it was the last stage race. Um, and then the fight on my family was there. And I noticed how big of a difference that that made. This is actually getting to a point. So uh, my mom and dad are actually coming to this race oh, to, to help awesome. me out. Yeah, they're both retired now. Um, so I'm just gonna I'm just gonna try and get help when I can, and then hopefully maybe one day Hoka will help out with that too. Uh, they're just not in a place to do that right now. But it does suck. You don't travel with a partner or anything. Uh, when he can make it, but he also has work. Yeah. So how yeah. many Hoka athletes are going to be racing? Are you and Jim? Who else? Oh, are you talking about UTMB later oh, this so, summer? Yeah. No. So isn't Jim racing next weekend as well? No. Oh, he's not. He's doing a UTMB in August. Yeah. So this one is, yeah. OCC. Yeah. Hoka will be at that one. And I don't know if they're helping Hoka us loves OCC. Yeah. Now they sponsor that whole week, which is so the so. most talking about strategy here and all that, like, uh, and then I think we should work on wrapping this up is, um, does everybody strategize like this? Like, I feel like in the, I mean, at that level, I understand more than normal would strategize, but I feel like in this community, even some of the good ones are like, I'm going to go out and just see what my body gives me today, or I'm going to feel it out on course. You kind of hear that a lot. Sometimes I've said it myself. Are you the exception or the rule with your strategizing? 
I don't know. It actually, I don't hear too many people's strategies, so I don't know, actually. Um, sometimes I feel like there's kind of this, like, technical means different to everybody. Um, and so I'll hear people say, like, oh, I'm going to run faster on the technical part. But, like, their version of technical versus my version of technical can be completely different depending on where you live, etc. Um, but, yeah, I would definitely say the best do because... Like, I'm a huge fan of the sport. I'll watch the races on live stream and stuff like that. And guys like Jim, he gets, they get to their Western States, you know, people that are helping him. And he has like numbered bins. And that's something in my head, I was like, I would totally do that too. I would have numbered bins. So it's very clear what I need at each aid station. Whereas I've crewed before and the person's like, I don't know, I want chips or I want so-and-so, you know, and you're like, all right, let's find chips. Um, so yeah, I would, Yes, the exception, but I don't want to speak for everyone just because we don't talk about it with each other, which I, is actually kind of interesting. Is there some division between the racers at this level? Like in the U.S., I feel like most people get along, but is there a clash of nations out there in the athlete village and before and after? Definitely not. I would say the only thing that separates us is our brands and our level of support. Hmm. Yeah. And so, how is the language barrier on course? Uh, they will speak in their own language and sometimes I don't know what they're saying, but mm -hmm. you know, the fans, you could get a gist of what they're saying. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about then live coverage. Is there some live coverage of this race? If people want to figure out a way to track it real time, I'm, I'm very curious how it goes. How would people do that? Yeah. Um, on YouTube, they'll have a live stream on the Golden Trail World Series YouTube channel. And then Instagram, they'll have like a bunch of updates. Uh, it's a big reason why I like this series. They do really good at like promoting the athletes and doing videos and stuff. And then similar to last year, they're going to do like that video series again, um, which that was pretty cool. I had no idea they were going to do that which and, until the end of the year. And I was like, oh, wow. Okay, cool. Have they, have they pulled you for any interviews or are they, are they not? That's always an interesting thing. Like if they pull me, you know, but if they don't pull me, I'm going to keep that receipt too. Like what? Are they pulling yeah. you for interviews or no? Uh, I'll do some, I think, before this one. Yeah. Probably because based off of my finish last year and I'm like the only American that was, you know, up there last year. Um, and I think they're trying to represent more of the countries and I'm Hoka, not Solomon, etc. Yeah. But last year I wasn't fooled at first and then I started doing well and they're like, Hey, let's get you on this video, which is cool. Yeah. I have to know if you're going semi self, so you, you have a support crew, but you have to hedge your bets a little bit ground up. What's your plan shoes and then your kit. Uh, for this race, I'll do the Tectons, which is the new Hoka shoe. So you respond with those? You like them? I do like them. I, there's always room for improvement, but I think <laughs> they'll work well for this race. Uh, last year, the Zanals, I was writing in them today, and they just need a little bit more tread for this one. Uh, just with how steep it is, I was kind of uh, slipping more than I would have liked. Kirk's a Zanal guy. I love that shoe. Yeah, it's a good shoe. <laughs> it's light it's very mm -hmm. light and it's a good shape on your foot depending on the shape of your foot for sure how do you feel on technical descents in the tecton good yeah um i unfortunately still don't have my bag it didn't make it with me which my tectons <laughs> are in there uh so i'll try it the next few days but based on what i've done in mammoth uh it's felt pretty good okay 
Yeah. Well, now I got and a question then, about the tectons real quick. Yeah. They're in a box. I haven't, I've only been able to basically sniff them real quick and close it because I get to this <laughs> interview. It just arrived. Um, do you feel like that shoe, um, I'm kind of using it as maybe a jack-of-all-trades shoe in the sense where if I want to run a flattish 50K, I maybe could, but I'm also curious about the steep terrain. Do you feel like it, it balances out well, um, mountains versus, let's call rolling? It, it, one shoe could do both jobs, that shoe? I think it could but i would pick the zanal for rolling still okay and i love personally the zanal rolling so you so you actually like it more on technical steep stuff yeah okay yeah i only have 18 miles in it but it's not one of those you feel a poppy plate on the flats yeah exactly whereas the zanal feels more like a racer shoe where you can they feel lighter and then how much water are you going to try to carry? Are you going, uh, are you a vest? Are you a waste pack? What are you doing for this one? TBD. Uh, TBD. Originally, I was thinking to start with a belt and then have my vest ready to go and do a quick swoop, pick it up. Yeah. Um, but I need to see the first part of the course. Now, after talking to some people, I might just start with a vest. Yeah. And you use that Hoka by Nathan vest? Uh, no, I use uh, Ultimate Direction. I'm sponsored by them. Yeah, they're oh, good. I was not aware. Yeah. And don't you yeah. have your own kit that you're going to maybe wear out there? You have the Danny Moreno kit, don't you? I wish. I wish I could wear it. Um, but no, I what? have a, like a Hoka Rabbit. Um, like, yeah, their logo's on it. Yeah. Well, as long as you're sponsored by them, let, let me know what pack do you like best from Ultimate Direction? Uh, the Race Vesta. The Race Vesta? Yeah. How do you like the bottle bounce in that? It's great. So the Hoka Nathan one, I wasn't a fan of the bottle bounds, which I think I'm allowed to say. Yeah, I didn't like it. Um, but the Ultimate Direction, it's just like, especially because they came out with new flasks now that are actually lighter. Um, so they like really stick to the chest well. well Bracken looks frozen. Bracken, yeah, he does. <laughs> <laughs> You're really mesmerized in there with that answer. All right. Um, <laughs> I don't know if I had any other gear questions, but I guarantee he did. <laughs> um, oh, great. All right, Danny, it's just me and you finishing solo because Bracken and, and technology aren't mixing. Um, Bracken just got booted off for some reason. He froze, and now he's non-existent, not back. And I want to be respectful of your time because it's basically tomorrow already where you are. So <laughs> um, we were talking about uh, sponsors and uh, your vest and all that. So I just want to wrap up with uh, who's got your back these days and where can people uh, find you? Yeah, um, so I have Hoka for shoes and uh, my kit and stuff, uh, Rabbit for apparel, which I love them as a company. Uh, they've been with me pretty, like, both have been with me since the beginning, but Rabbit even more so. Um, and then I have Ultimate Direction for race day hydration, training hydration, uh, spring energy for nutrition, uh, dry max on my feet. And uh, yeah, I think that is everyone. I think you're covered from head to toe. Yeah. <laughs> you better check just to make sure you're not missing anybody. When you have that many, it can be confusing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yes, I, I covered everyone. There. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I see what you're doing there. Okay. Well, that's great. And did you get all those sponsors? Um, they all came to you. Everybody always asks, like, how do I get sponsors? Well, you, you show up, run fast, and you're likable, right? That's how you get sponsors. Um, there you are. Um, is that, is most of them approached you and that was, that was how that all worked? 
Um, I was lucky with Rabbit and Hoka, but everyone else I approached, and I always tell everyone, you know, you're interviewing for a job, essentially, and your job is to, you know, help endorse that brand. Obviously, you want to love the products genuinely, um, but it's not just always a give, it's a give and take sort of relationship. So, you know, I have my own resume that I have set up, a PDF with all the things that come with me as a runner, accolades, etc. And I reach out to a lot of companies and that's how many of my relationships are built. And sometimes I get creative. I like go through a contact us page if I don't know how to find someone and give a very lengthy email or comment as to why I should be a partner with them. See, there's no shame in going out and grabbing it yourself, folks. I've done the same thing. I've used products that I've really enjoyed and then have followed up myself. Yeah. And um, that's how I've gotten, uh, at least in the beginning, the majority of my sponsors. So it's good to hear somebody high end. You know, we look at you as like you're kind of the epitome in the dream a little bit. You're kind of knocking on that door. And it's good to know that you're still going out and chasing it, too. That's cool. Um, and then where can people kind of keep up with uh, how things are going? I think you're a good follow on social media. Um, where can Where is all that? Yeah, I would say I'm most active on social or Instagram, which is uh, Dan underscore Yell underscore A, which is Daniela, which is my name. Uh, there's actually a lot of Daniela Morenos in the world, I learned. Uh, I kind of already knew that, but I yeah. learned that about four <laughs> hours ago when I was, yep, finding Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, great. Um, well, appreciate your time. Thanks for... Uh, hanging out with us even though you're traveling and probably exhausted appreciate uh, appreciate that and i very much look forward to seeing uh seeing the results coming up so i'll be rooting for you cool thank you i appreciate thanks for having me yeah very welcome and this episode of the running public is brought to you by us and the running public training plan this running plan has everything we ever talk about on any Training Tuesday, all compiled into one all-encompassing training plan. Now, it's an OCR-specific training plan, but 95% of this is just running. So it doesn't matter if you're training for an OCR or a marathon or whatever. It all is in there. Speed work, threshold, hill work, up, down, long run, long qualities, and plenty of compromised running. Everything we talk about is just waiting for you. That's right. The hardest part about creating your own training schedule is deciding what to do the next day or that day. We take care of that for you, which I think is worth the uh, $19.99 a month in itself. It's cheap, right? And you can cancel at any time. If you've been curious about it or you don't know how to put together all the knowledge we share on the podcast into your own training plan, it's a no-brainer. Where can people go find this uh, this training plan and get signed up, Bragging? On our beautiful website, therunningpublic.com, nineteen ninety nine a month, cancel anytime you want. So go sign up.